Section 54 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 16 The Classical Renaissance by Sir Richard C. Jebb. Part 2 boccaccio is the first italian of the renaissance who is known to have made any progress in the study of greek he was impelled to it by the advice of petrarch a friend to whom his modest and affectionate nature gave an ungrudging and unbounded worship his teacher was leontius pilatus a pupil of the barlam who had been petrarch's instructor and like him a calabrian who had migrated to byzantium the notion of leontius to be gathered from petrarch who had read with him at venice and from boccaccio again illustrates the difficulty of finding tolerable greek teaching in italy leontius evidently knew little or nothing beyond the byzantine greek of the day he was stupid and pretentious his temper appears to have been morose and his personal habits were repulsive nevertheless boccaccio received him into his house at florence and caused him to be appointed professor of greek in the studio there he made for boccaccio a bald and faulty translation of homer into bad latin prose which was sent to petrarch and received by him as an inestimable boon but the first real teacher of greek in italy the man with whom the revival of greek learning in the west began was manuel chrysoloras who lectured on greek at florence from thirteen ninety seven to fourteen hundred he was a byzantine of good family who had previously visited italy on a mission from the emperor palaeologus for the purpose of seeking aid against the turks some cultivated florentines who had then met him afterwards prevailed on the signoria of florence to offer him the chair of greek which he accepted his coming made an epoch in the history of european letters he was a scholar able to interpret the classical greek poets and prose writers and he was eloquent the enthusiasm created at florence must have been remarkable for the first time italians were placed in sympathy with the ancient greek mind at its best ardent students young and old including several who afterwards became eminent crowded the lecture-room one of these was leonardo bruni well known in later life for his latin history of florence as also for translations from plato aristotle demosthenes and plutarch he has described the powerful spell by which the new teacher drew him away from the study of civil law it is especially noteworthy that he speaks of chrysoloras without hesitation as opening a new era the knowledge of greek he says was revived after an interval of seven centuries he might have said eight or nine chrysoloras of byzantium brought us greek learning 
i gave myself to his teaching with such ardor that my dreams at night were filled with what i had learned from him by day another scholar who met chrysoloras at pavia pierre candido de sembrio speaks of him with a similar enthusiasm the greek grammar of chrysoloras in the form of questions and answers erotemata was the earliest modern book of the kind florence was then the intellectual centre of italy and throughout the fifteenth century it continued to be pre-eminently the home of greek studies while at the same time taking its full share in the advancement of latin scholarship but chrysoloras did not confine his activities to florence he taught greek at pavia for some time between fourteen hundred and fourteen o three as well as at milan at venice and perhaps at rome he visited padua also but did not teach there the movement so powerfully and widely initiated by chrysoloras was continued by several of his compatriots most of whom came to italy between fourteen hundred and the capture of constantinople in fourteen fifty three the restoration of greek letters in italy preceded the fall of the eastern empire and was not as has sometimes been supposed a result of emigrations caused by that event the greeks who chiefly effected the revival were drawn westward by the demand for teachers which offered them distinguished and lucrative careers the subsequent break-up of byzantine society sent over no doubt a fresh stream of exiles and reinforced the ranks of hellenism in the west but by that time greek studies in italy were already vigorous a few names stand preeminent in the series of greeks who furthered the hellenic renaissance georgius trapezuntius george of trebizond who came to italy about fourteen twenty taught at venice florence rome and elsewhere his work is more especially associated with rome where his criticisms on plato brought him into controversy with his compatriot cardinal bessarion while primarily busied with his native language george of trebizond also gained the highest repute as a master of latin style theodorus gaza arriving in italy about fourteen thirty taught greek for some nine years fourteen forty one to fifty at ferrara and afterwards settled at rome his best-known works were translations from aristotle and a greek grammar which was already a classic when printed by aldus in fourteen ninety five the study of plato and the neoplatonists at florence received a marked impetus from the visit in fourteen thirty eight of gemistos plethon whose mysticism if eccentric and sometimes extravagant was allied with power and sincerity it was his influence which led cosmo de medici to found the platonic academy of florence another fruit of his visit was the latin translation of plato by marsilio ficino printed in fourteen eighty two among the greek teachers specially associated with florence none perhaps is more worthy of a place next to chrysoloras 
than john argyropoulos who held the greek chair for fifteen years fourteen fifty six to seventy one afterwards going to rome where one of his best pupils was ruchlin somewhat later the florentine professorship was held by andronicus callistus who had politian among his hearers it was about fourteen forty seven that demetrius chalcondylas came from constantinople to rome he obtained the chair of greek at perugia where he taught with great success other names of high merit might be cited but perhaps only one remains which is of quite the same rank as those above mentioned john lascaris much of whose work as a teacher was done in paris was invited by leo x to rome where he helped to promote greek studies after another visit to france he died at rome in fifteen thirty five these greek restorers of greek letters in the west were happy in the season of their labors the temper of the age is reflected in bruni's enthusiasm for chrysoloras and in the words which a young student at perugia wrote concerning the lectures of chalcondylas quote, a greek has just come and has begun to teach me with great diligence while i listen to him with indescribable pleasure because he is a greek it seems to me as if in him were mirrored the wisdom the refined intelligence and the elegance of those famous men of old End quote. meanwhile the revival of latin scholarship was following the course on which it had been started by petrarch giovanni de conversino da ravenna who had lived as a pupil in petrarch's house became the most eminent latinist of his time he was the earliest example of a teacher who went from city to city communicating his own ardor to successive groups of students but the chief scene of his labors was padua where he was professor of rhetoric from thirteen ninety two to about fourteen o five among his pupils were two who were destined to become famous as humanist educators vittorino da feltre and guarino da verona conversino's favorite author was cicero but he lectured also on the roman poets though not distinguished as a writer he contributed by his teaching to that zealous study of latin style which was a characteristic feature of the italian renaissance the quote, imitation of the ancients was more than a literary fashion or a pedantic exercise it sprang from the desire of italians for whom latin literature was being opened anew to recover the tongue of their roman ancestors that language barbarized in the course of centuries which bore witness to the ancient glories of the land in which they lived and to the civilization whose monuments were around them italy had many dialects and tuscan even in the fifteenth century had only a limited currency while latin was an universal language practical utility thus conspired with patriotic sentiment and with the zeal of scholarship but it was not easy to lift latin to a higher level while the medieval form of it was still current in the learned professions in the offices of the church and in ordinary correspondence letter-writing was the department 
of latin composition to which the humanists naturally and properly gave their first attention it was in this that petrarch had especially shown his power his younger contemporary coluccio di salutati who became chancellor of florence in thirteen seventy five set the example of writing classical and elegant latin in public documents the higher standard of official and diplomatic latinity which he introduced had the effect of opening employment to professional scholars in many chanceries and courts of italy a close study of cicero's letters with a view to correctness and fluency in latin correspondence won a reputation for gasparino da barzizza who on the invitation of filippo maria visconti opened a school at milan in fourteen eighteen latin epistolography was now cultivated as a special branch of literature the letters exchanged between eminent scholars were as a rule private only in form being vehicles for the display of style wit and learning they were usually intended if not for publication in the modern sense at least for a large circulation the range of topics was conventionally restricted by a pervading desire to write somewhat as cicero might have written to atticus notices of books and manuscripts literary criticism introductions or recommendations of friends requests and commissions thanks compliments occasional glimpses into the writer's daily occupations form the staple of such epistles there is seldom any reference to contemporary politics to questions of theology or to any modern subjects which could not be handled without breaking the classical illusion sometimes indeed eminent scholars addressed theological or political pamphlets in choice latin to princes or prelates but such efforts lay outside the ordinary province of humanistic letter-writing nor were really private matters often confided to these latin letters quote, i always write in the vulgar tongue a la grossolana says filelfo those things which i do not wish to be copied End quote. nevertheless the latin letter-writing of the renaissance has the interest of exhibiting with great distinctness the characters of the writers and their friends it has also a larger claim on our gratitude it was an exercise sufficiently pleasurable to be widely used by which successive generations of lettered men gradually rose to the conception of a style which should be correct fluent and easy in the darker ages the model of a good prose had been lost the italian letter writers of the renaissance the imitators of cicero were laboring to restore it they achieved their object and the achievement bore fruit not merely in latin but afterwards in the modern languages of europe it was to be expected that as the cultivation of latin style progressed the imitation of the ancient models should become more critical lorenzo valla who died in fourteen fifty seven was the author of a work the elegantis latine lingue which marked the highest level that had yet been reached in the critical study of latin he dealt with various points of grammar 
with niceties of phrase and idiom and with the discrimination of synonyms his book appears to have been reprinted nearly sixty times between fourteen seventy one and fifteen thirty six after valla the next italian latinist who became an authority on the more minute refinements of style was bembo whose reputation was at its zenith in the pontificate of leo x fifteen thirteen to twenty one but bembo's scope was much more limited than valla's cicero's usage was a law from which bembo never consciously swerved in strong contrast with his timid and even morbid ciceronianism a symptom that the italian revival had passed its prime stands a quality which we recognize in the latin writing of the more powerful and genial humanists this is briefly the gift of writing latin almost as if it were a living language politian had this gift in an eminent degree and exhibits it in verse no less than in prose poggio before him had it too though his latin was much rougher and less classical the same quality may be ascribed to paulus jovius fourteen eighty three to fifteen fifty two whose vivid and picturesque style in narrative was compared by leo x with some exaggeration but not without some justice to that of livy to write latin as such men wrote it demanded the union of general correctness with ease and spontaneity the fact that several italian humanists attained to this merit is a proof that the imitatio veterum was not necessarily lifeless or mechanical but could serve a truly educative purpose by helping men to regain a flexible organ of literary expression erasmus though in touch with the italian renaissance belongs to a stage beyond it his ridicule of pseudo ciceronianism falls on the sect of bembo but his own latin style so admirable in its elasticity edge and force is a result which only the italian renaissance had made possible yet the cultivation of latin style while it was so salient a trait of the italian revival was only one of its manifold energies the same study of the classical writers which incited men to imitate their form inspired also the wish to comprehend their subject matter there was a widespread desire to enter into the ideas and the meaning of the ancient greek and roman civilizations italians were especially eager to reconstruct an image as distinct as possible of the manner in which their ancestors had lived but the aids to such study now so abundant did not yet exist there were no dictionaries of mythology of biography of antiquities no treatises on classical archaeology no collections of inscriptions a teacher in the earlier time of the renaissance when he dictated an all-embracing commentary to his pupils had to rely mostly on the stores gathered by his own reading the erudite labor done by the italian humanists was of great variety and volume many of the more eminent scholars 
published notes critical or exegetical on the greek or latin authors whom they expounded in their lectures but such work has left comparatively few distinctive traces having been either absorbed into later books or superseded latin translations from the greek classics formed an important department of humanistic work and were of the greatest service not only at the renaissance but long afterwards in diffusing the study of greek literature the learned humanist tommaso parentuccelli who became pope nicholas v in fourteen forty seven was especially zealous in promoting such translations many of which were made at rome during his pontificate greek residents in italy contributed to the work but italians were not less active indeed there were few distinguished humanists who did not give this proof of their greek scholarship in the field of textual criticism mention is due to politian's edition of the pandects of justinian perhaps the earliest work based on a careful collation of manuscripts and on a critical estimate of their relative authority the manuals of grammar produced at the renaissance were inevitably of a crude kind but some of them at least had merits which made them standard works for several generations thus the earliest of the renaissance greek grammars that of manuel chrysoloras afterwards translated from greek into latin by guarino held its ground well into the sixteenth century it was the first textbook used by erasmus when teaching greek at cambridge the next to which he introduced his pupils was the more advanced greek grammar of theodoros gaza dating perhaps from about fourteen forty five though first printed in fourteen ninety five the greek grammar of constantine lascaris composed perhaps about fourteen sixty and printed in fourteen seventy six also had a high reputation the latin grammar of nicolos perotti printed at rome in fourteen seventy three treats grammar in connection with rhetoric and is commended by erasmus as the most complete manual on the subject then extant the higher historical criticism is represented by lorenzo valla already mentioned as a fine latinist in fourteen forty when naples was at feud with the papal see he published a tract on the donation of constantine proving that the chief document of the temporal power was spurious eugenius the fourth was then pope his successor nicholas v a scholar and a statesman read in valla's tract a sign of the times the council of florence fourteen thirty eight where greeks and latins met in conference had lately shown that the history of the early church could not be fully understood without a knowledge of greek writings and now it was plain that the long impunity of ecclesiastical forgery was drawing to an end nicholas saw that humanism would be less disastrous to the vatican as an uncongenial inmate than as an irrepressible critic he made valla an official of the curia it was a turning point the new papal policy was continued with few breaks down to the reformation 
beyond the limits of strictly literary studies there was a wide and varied field of interests which the classical revival opened to italians the superstitious awe with which the middle ages had viewed the ruins of ancient rome was not accompanied by any feeling for their artistic worth or by the slightest desire to preserve them a latin epigram by pius the second fourteen fifty eight to sixty four the first pope who endeavored to arrest their decay attests the fact to which there are other witnesses that even then the citizens of rome used to strip marbles from the ancient monuments in order to burn them as lime where the roman remains were capable of conversion into dwellings or strongholds as was the case especially with some of the baths and tombs they had often been occupied by medieval nobles and had thus been exposed to further damage many such monuments had been destroyed and the ruins had then been used as quarries but a change of feeling came with the spirit of the incipient renaissance the first phase of this new feeling was a sense of pathetic contrast between the majesty of the ancient remains and the squalor of the modern city petrarch compares rome to a stately woman of venerable aspect but clad in mean and tattered garments poggio is reminded of a queen in slavery he was the first man of the renaissance who had studied the monuments of rome with the method of a scholar and an archaeologist comparing them with the testimony of the latin classics his urbis rome descriptio the title commonly given to the first section of his essay de varietate fortune is the clearest general survey now extant of the roman monuments as they existed in the first half of the fifteenth century poggio gives us some idea of the rate at which destructive agencies had been working even in his own lifetime but a better day was at hand the interest in italian archaeology had already become active flavio biondo blondus who died in fourteen sixty three compiled an encyclopedic work in three parts roma instaurata roma triumphans and italia illustrata on the history institutions manners topography and monuments of ancient italy he lived to complete also more than thirty books of a great work on the period commencing with the decline of the roman empire historiarum ab inclinatione romanorum in an age so largely occupied with style which was not among his gifts biondo is a signal example of laborious and comprehensive erudition he holds indeed an honorable place among the founders of roman archaeology it was just at the close of biondo's life that pius the second in fourteen sixty two issued his bull designed to protect the remains of ancient rome from further depredations the solicitude of which this was the first official expression was not always imitated by his successors but the period from about fourteen seventy to fifteen twenty five was one which saw a notable advance in the care and study bestowed on works of ancient art and architecture within that period 
the museum of the capital and the museum of the vatican were founded the appreciation of classical sculpture was quickened by the recovery of many ancient works near the entrance to the garden of the belvedere the newly found apollo was erected by julius the second fifteen o three to thirteen pope who perceived how renascent art could add splendor to the see of st peter and at whose bidding bramante replaced the ancient basilica of constantine by the greatest church of christendom michelangelo saw the laocoon disinterred from the ruined baths of titus leo x acquired the reclining statues of the nile and the tiber and the so-called antinos these and other specimens of classical art though not representative of that art at its best helped to educate italian taste already well disposed towards every form of classical culture the latin verse writers of leo's age show the impression made by the newly found works of sculpture it is more interesting to note the remark of an expert the florentine sculptor ghiberti who in speaking of an ancient statue which he had seen at rome observes that its subtle perfection eludes the eye and can be fully appreciated only by passing the hand over the surface of the marble the most memorable record of the new zeal for ancient rome is the letter addressed to leo x in fifteen eighteen by raphael he writes as master of the works at st peter's and inspector-general of antiquities having been appointed to these posts in fifteen fifteen for a long time he had been engaged in a comprehensive study of the ancient monuments in them he says he had recognized quote, the divinity of those minds of the old world end quote. a pitiful sight it is to him quote, the mangled corpse of this noble mother once the queen of the world temples arches statues and other buildings the glory of their founders end quote, had been allowed to suffer defacement or destruction quote, i would not hesitate to say he continues that all this new rome which our eyes behold grand and beautiful as it is adorned with palaces churches and other structures has been built with lime made from ancient marbles end quote he next recalls with details the progress of the havoc during the twelve years which he has passed in rome and then he unfolds his project mapping out rome into fourteen regions he urges that systematic works should be undertaken for the purpose of clearing or excavating all existing remains of the ancient city and then safeguarding them against further injury his premature death in fifteen twenty prevented the execution of the design the greatness of that design is well expressed in one of the latin elegies which mourned his loss nunc romam in roma quaerit reperitque raphael it shows the grasp of his genius and is also an impressive witness to the new spirit of the renaissance this was a period at which vitruvius edited not long before by fra giocondo and frontinus found many readers the classical influence was indeed already the dominant one in italian sculpture and architecture 
it was a power which might tend to cold formalism as in palladio or happily ally itself with the native bent of the modern artist as in giulio romano but for good or evil it was everywhere meanwhile scholars were producing learned work in various branches of roman archaeology a permanently valuable service to latin epigraphy was rendered by jacopo mazzocchi and his collaborator francesco albertini in epigrammata antique urbis romae fifteen twenty one where some use was made of earlier collections by ciriaco of ancona and fra giocondo andrea fulvio published in fifteen twenty seven his antiquitates urbis romae the urbis romae topographia of bartolomeo marliano appeared in fifteen thirty seven such books though their contents have been mostly absorbed or transmuted in later works claim the gratitude which is due to indefatigable pioneers the buoyancy and animation of the renaissance in italy were sustained throughout by the joys of discovery and of these none was keener than the delight of acquiring manuscripts petrarch was the leader in this as in other ways he was prepared to undertake any trouble in his own person or through emissaries for the sake of finding a new classical book or a better copy of one which was already known the first of his epistles to marcus tullius cicero expresses the feelings stirred in him by reading the orator's letters to atticus brutus and quintus which he had just been fortunate enough to unearth at verona he was not destined to know the epistolae ad familiares which were found about thirteen eighty nine at vercelli petrarch had a quaint and lively way which was copied by his immediate successors of personifying the hidden and neglected manuscripts of the classics as gentle prisoners held in captivity by barbarous jailers the monastic or cathedral libraries of italy were the places which first attracted research boccaccio's account of his visit to the abbey of monte cassino in apulia recorded by a pupil vividly pictures the scandalous treatment of the books there which the monks ruthlessly mutilated for the purpose of making cheap psalters amulets or anything by which they could earn a few pence but the quest was not confined to italy italian or foreign agents of the roman curia had frequent opportunities of prosecuting research in the libraries of northern europe thus poggio's journey to the council of constance in fourteen fourteen in the capacity of apostolic secretary enabled him to visit several religious houses in switzerland and swabia at the abbey of st gall he discovered to his intense pleasure the institutions of quintilian previously known only through a defective copy found by petrarch at florence the place in which the books were kept is described by poggio as a sort of dungeon foul and dark at the bottom of a tower quintilian he says quote, seemed to be stretching out his hands calling upon the romans end quote, and praying to be saved from the doom to which barbarians had consigned him some other classical authors including valerius flaccus were found by poggio on the same occasion 
he was indeed one of the most fortunate of the searchers among his rewards were cicero's speech for caecina lucretius silius italicus manilius columella vitruvius and ammianus marcellinus centuries were to elapse before the process of exploration begun by these early humanists was to be finished only in our own day has the actual wealth of europe in classical manuscripts been ascertained with any approach to completeness but in the period of the italian renaissance discoveries more or less important were of frequent occurrence and no one could tell from what quarter the next treasure trove might come thus in fourteen twenty five cicero's rhetorical treatises were found by gerardo landriani in the duomo at lodi and four years later nicholas of treves a fiscal agent of the vatican in germany sent thence to rome the most complete codex of plautus one of the greatest acquisitions was among the latest not till fifteen o eight did the modern world recover the first six books of the annals of tacitus the manuscript said to have been found in the monastery of corvi was sent from westphalia to rome and was acquired by giovanni de medici afterwards leo x but it was more especially the quest for greek classics that engaged the ardent zeal of the earlier humanists the comparative novelty of greek literature stimulated curiosity greek codices were sought not only by students eager for knowledge but also by a much larger world commercial houses at florence such as that of the medici with agencies throughout europe and the levant spared no expense in procuring greek books princes and sometimes popes joined in the competition a new greek classic gave not only the kind of pleasure which an expert finds in a rare book but also the pride of possession not necessarily allied with knowledge which a wealthy collector feels in a good picture in short classical antiquity greek especially was vehemently the fashion in italy if that phrase be not less than just to the earnestness of the movement a letter writer of the time has related that just after the publication of politian's miscellanea at florence in fourteen eighty nine he happened to go into a public office and found the clerks neglecting their business while they devoured the new book divided in sheets among them in an age when the demand for manuscripts had all these forces behind it the search could not fail to be well organized if only as a branch of commerce for greek books constantinople was the chief hunting ground thither for at least half a century before the fatal year fourteen fifty three many italian humanists repaired enjoying we may suppose every facility for research three such men are foremost among those who brought copies of the greek classics to italy giovanni aurispa thirteen sixty nine to fourteen fifty nine went to constantinople in youth to study greek and returning to italy in fourteen twenty three carried with him no less than two hundred thirty eight manuscripts 
a quiet teacher and student, as he is described by Filelfo, Placidis Aurispa Camoenis Deditus. He closed his long life at Ferrara. Guarino da Verona, 1374-1460, who also acquired Greek at Constantinople, brought back with him a large number of Greek books. But neither he nor Aurispa can have had better opportunities than Francesco Filelfo, 1398-1481, afterwards so conspicuous as a humanist. He studied Greek at Constantinople with John, brother of Manuel Crisoloras, whose daughter he married. In selecting the books which he brought home with him, he doubtless had access to the best stores of the eastern metropolis. Considerable interest, therefore, attaches to the list of his Greek books, which Filelfo gives in a letter to Ambrogio Traversari, written shortly after his return to Venice in 1427. The manuscripts which he enumerates are those which he had carried with him to Italy. He says that he is expecting a few more, alios nonulos, by the next Venetian ships from the Bosporus. But we may assume that the catalogue in this letter includes the great bulk of his Greek library. It comprises the principal Greek poets, including the Alexandrian, with the notable exception of the Attic dramatists, who are represented only by, quote, seven plays of Euripides, end quote. In prose, he has the historians from Herodotus to Polybius. Of the orators, Demosthenes, Eschines, and, quote, one oration of Lysias, end quote. No dialogue of Plato, but nearly all the more important writings of Aristotle. Also, much prose literature, good and bad, of the Alexandrian and Roman ages. The list contains no book which is not now extant. Not all men, however, were in a position to seek manuscripts for themselves at Constantinople or elsewhere. The majority of collectors perforce relied on agents. A typical figure in the manuscript trade of the Renaissance was Vespasiano da Bisticci of Florence, 1421-98, to to whose pen we owe vivid portraits of several among his more distinguished clients. He acted as an agent in procuring and purchasing manuscripts. He also employed a staff of copyists, which was probably the largest in Europe. But he was not merely a man of business. He was scholar enough to see that his men made correct transcripts. In his later years, the printer was beginning to supersede the scribe. Vespasiano regarded this new mechanical contrivance with all the scorn of a connoisseur in penmanship, and of one who grieved that those treasures which he procured for the select few should be placed within the reach of the multitude. Among the eminent men of whom Vespasiano became the biographer was Niccolo di Niccoli of Florence, one of the most notable collectors in the early Renaissance. Nicoli was an elegant Latin scholar, and held a prominent place in the literary circle of Cosmo de' Medici. His house was filled with choice relics of antiquity, marbles, coins, and gems. In the refined luxury of his private life, he seemed to Vespasiano, quote, a perfect model of the men of old, end quote, 
but the object to which he devoted most of his wealth and thought was the acquisition of greek and latin manuscripts it was to him that aurispa brought the famous eleventh century codex now known as the laurentian containing aeschylus sophocles and apollonius rhodius bred in the days when good copyists were scarce nicoli had become inured like petrarch boccaccio and poggio to the labor of transcribing manuscripts and a large proportion of those in his library were the work of his own hand at his death in fourteen thirty seven he bequeathed eight hundred manuscripts to cosimo de medici and fifteen other trustees among whom were ambrogio traversari and poggio this noble bequest was worthily used by cosmo de medici who stands out as the first great founder of libraries at the renaissance already in his exile from florence he had founded at venice in fourteen thirty three the library of san giorgio maggiore in fourteen forty one when the new hall of the convent of san marco at florence was ready to receive books he placed there four hundred of nicoli's volumes of the other four hundred the greater part passed into his own large collection which became the nucleus of the medician library for the new abbey which he had built at fiesole he also provided a library giving a commission to vespasiano who set forty-five copyists to work and produced two hundred manuscripts in twenty-two months the medician collection joined to those of san marco and of the abbey at fiesole form the oldest part of the books now in the biblioteca medicio laurenziana another great library which first took shape in the fifteenth century is that of the vatican a papal library of some sort had existed from very early times and had received from pope zacharias seven forty one to fifty two a large addition to its stock of greek manuscripts this old collection had been deposited in the lateran when the papal court was removed to avignon in thirteen o nine the books were taken thither the great schism which began in thirteen seventy eight was closed by the election of martin v in fourteen seventeen the books were subsequently brought back from avignon to rome and placed in the vatican eugenius the fourth fourteen thirty one to forty seven who came next after martin v interested himself in this matter but his successor nicholas v fourteen forty seven to fifty five has the best claim to be called the founder of the vatican library as tommaso parentuccelli he had catalogued the library of san marco at florence for cosmo de medici he was thus well qualified to build up a great collection for the vatican during the eight years of his pontificate he enlarged that collection with energy and judgment adding to it several thousands of manuscripts the number of latin manuscripts alone was at his death eight hundred twenty four as is shown by a catalogue dated april sixteenth fourteen fifty five he had intended also to erect a spacious library which should be thrown open to the public but he did not live to execute that design his successor 
Calixtus III, 1455-8, added many volumes brought from Constantinople after its capture by the Turks. Sixtus IV, 1471-84, Francesco della Rovere, a Franciscan monk of learning and eloquence, became the second founder of the library. In 1475, he appointed as librarian the erudite Bartolomeo Sacchi, known as Platina from the Latinized name of his birthplace, Piadena. Under the supervision of Platina, to whom Sixtus IV gave a free hand, the collection was lodged in its present abode, a suite of rooms on the ground floor of a building in the Vatican, which had been erected by Nicholas V, but had hitherto been used for other purposes. Before his death in 1481, Platina enjoyed the satisfaction of seeing these rooms suitably furnished and decorated. A catalogue had also been made, and the Vatican Library had been completely established in its new home. Among private founders of libraries in the 15th century, mention is due to Federigo da Montefeltro, Duke of Urbino, who created there a great collection of classics, of theology, and of medieval and humanistic literature. Vespasiano states that during fourteen years a large staff of scribes was constantly occupied in adding to this collection, and records with marked satisfaction that no printed book was suffered to profane it. Few private libraries then in existence can have rivaled that of Urbino, but many others must have been very considerable. Such, for instance, was the library of Cardinal Bessarion at Rome, said by Vespasiano to have contained 600 Greek and Latin manuscripts. The owner presented it in 1468 to St. Mark's at Venice, but with that apathy towards the classical renaissance which characterized the Venetian Republic down to the close of the 15th century, a generation went by before the munificent gift was worthily housed. End of section 54 Recording by Linda Johnson, 1539-1539